0: Hello and welcome to All Indians Matter. I am Ashraf Engineer. Informal employment is largely the norm in India. According to the Periodic Labour Force Survey 2017-18, of the 461 million employed persons, 415 million were informally employed. Of these, only 96 million, according to the women in the informal economy report, are female. The data is telling. While women make up only 23% of India's informal employees, up to 91% of women in paid jobs are in the informal sector. This is a huge gender imbalance that also manifests itself in the form of pay gaps and other biases.
1: All Indians matter.
0: We have on the show Shalini Singh, a multiple award-winning journalist based in Delhi. She's a fellow at India Spend, a data journalism site, working on a series called Women at Work. It's about this and the data she has unearthed about India's informal women workers that we will talk about today. Her earlier work on environment issues and investigation into illegal mining in Goa and livelihood rights in rural Odisha won all the top Indian journalism awards, including the first Kushro Irani Prize, the Prem Bhatia Memorial Award, and the Ramnath Goenka Excellence in Journalism Award between 2011 and 13. Her latest on climate change in Delhi, told through the lived experiences of Yamuna's fisherfolk and Farmers, was shortlisted for the 2020 International Fetisof Journalism Awards. This was done for the People's Archive of Rural India where she is also a founding trustee. Shalmi has written extensively about gender, culture and society during a decade at the Hindustan Times and the week before going on to spend 2017-18 as a Neiman Fellow at Harvard University. Welcome to the show, Shalmi.
1: Thank you for having me, Ashraf.
0: Shalmi, India's informal sector is the largest in the world employing 90% of its overall labour force. What you often find is that one industrial unit will employ a mix of formal and informal workers so what is the difference between the benefits each of them receive
1: so if i was to take the example of a garment factory uh, which is basically where my uh, the last story that i've done in the women at work series for india spent uh, is based on uh, which so if, for example in a in a garment factory which could employ both formal workers and informal workers uh, and in terms of informal workers, which means that you're contracting out certain lines, uh, you know, to the informal workers. Now, in the case of formal workers in the same factory, they could be covered by a provident fund. They could get paid leave, um, other benefits, uh, you know, maybe say maternity leave and, you know, things like that. Uh, or and, and the informal workers within the same factory uh, would just probably receive cash in an envelope for the work done and nothing else. So there is no job security. Or benefits that the formal workers receive, so they are obviously more vulnerable, and uh, you know you have uh, in 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 uh, no regular working hours, no you know sort of signed contracts. Uh, I'll give you an example of uh, uh, of this young eighteen year old uh, girl who works in a jeans packing unit in uh, uh, Khajuri Khas. which is on the outskirts of Delhi, um, and she works at this unit with her mother, who's thirty six, and you know they both work together at this. Uh, Uh, Jeans packing unit, and so when they get their wages, they just sign a register uh, kept by the contractor at the factory for the wages received. But look at how that's structured, right? I mean, uh, the 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 contractor keeps that register, makes them sign for the wages they've received, and but they have no proof in terms of that they are employed at this unit. So if they want to show somebody that uh, yes, I'm employed at this unit, uh, they'll probably take us to the factory, uh, you know, the, the site and hope that the contractor recognizes her as, yes, she works here. So, so you see that level of vulnerability, you know, that's there uh, when it comes to informal work and especially when it comes to women.
0: Yeah, in fact, uh, the point that you raise about women is important. Your research shows that women suffer uh, what you call a double whammy of job insecurity and gender bias. Could you expand on that?
1: I mean, so just following a logical progression from what I just said, you know, informal workers are worse off than formal workers in terms of benefits and security. And we know that in most fields, uh, if not all, uh, women have it worse. So in this case, uh, if a woman uh, as as an informal worker uh, deals with not just job insecurity, but also gender bias, which leads to her income being low, uncertain, doesn't have bargaining power to seek better terms or you know, working conditions and hence a lower, you know, and, and also because of a lower social status. So my point is that when if, if the unorganized sector is, is in a bad shape, then the women who comprise um, whatever portion of it uh, are, are worse off because women have to deal with their own uh, issues within any sector. So when it's really bad for the informal sector, it's far worse for the women.
0: Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. In fact, women's participation in the labor force is at a historic low, uh, falling to 17.5% in 2017-18. What does that tell us about society and the way employment works?
1: Uh, very telling. Um, actually, there has been a 12% decrease in women's participation in the labor force between 2004-05 and 5 and 2017-18. and 18. And if you look at women's participation in the labor force, it was thirty, almost thirty-seven percent in the 1970s. So, and in 2018-19, the labor force part, the the labor force participation in India was fifty to fifty point two percent, and it came down to forty point two percent in uh, just the next year, in May June. Uh, sorry, in May August 2020, uh, which of course was you know the impact of COVID and you know things like that. And if you, and if you look at the case of Delhi, which is something that I focused on in my stories. Delhi had the highest unemployment rate among all states in India at 23%. And uh, Delhi is the capital of India. And this is, you know, this the state of affairs here. And if you look at, uh, additionally, women also do, according to certain reports that I've, you know, researched and looked at and quoted in my stories, is that women do five hours uh, of unpaid domestic work at home, which is three times more than what men do. So this is because... Well, women's time is not valued, and uh, of course, the burden of you know domestic work falls on them mostly squarely. And if you look at states like UP and Bihar, you know there, there's always been like this sort of a cultural stigma to women's participation in the workforce because it's considered an indignity, and then that's also linked to the caste system. So upper caste system, uh, sorry, upper caste women in these states, you know, may not even be working in their own fields. And and for me, you know, while researching all this, I also came upon an interesting um, aspect that sort of just, you know, just just makes it all even worse. Is the health aspect of it right? That it's it's a key constraint that women in rural India are, you know, are, are expected to b- birth three or four children. They become more frail, and one in every two uh, women in India is uh, anemic. So India has literally the largest number of malnourished women among developing countries. So lack of uh, economic security and increased caregiving, health constraints, I mean, they just add up to um, a pretty bleak picture as far as the women are concerned.
0: You mentioned briefly the COVID-19 pandemic. Could you expand a little bit on that? How did that impact an already bad situation?
1: So, um, I mean, if, if I was to give you sort of a broad macro picture first, if you look at there are 740 million worldwide who work in the informal economy and their income went down by 60% in the first month of the pandemic. Now, additionally, 47 million women and girls will be pushed into poverty in the years to come. And if you look at the female poverty rate in South Asia, it is almost 20% of the world's poor Uh, And and 20% of the world's poor will be uh, living in South Asia, which is up from about 15% projected earlier because of the pandemic. There's going to be like an additional hit to that. And if I give you a snapshot of Delhi, um, you know, sort of taking off from the first story that I did, which was looking at how the pandemic affected uh, the informal workers, uh, women informal workers in Delhi. Um, I mean, I, I took the case of a domestic worker who lives just three kilometers from my house. She lost her uh, jobs, uh, you know, working in two homes, which fetched her about 9000 a month. And she got paid nothing during the lockdown, not even, you know, uh, some sort of security money. And three children and a husband. Her husband, who works as a security guard, his job, you know, stayed as it did. I mean, he didn't lose his job. So that's how the family could survive. And, uh, you know, interestingly, she used the word shortcut to describe how the family survived uh, during the lockdown was, she said, uh, we ate one potato instead of two, which was like a shortcut that they had to resort to. And that just was, you know, um, very wrenching. And uh, there was no, of course, no computer for the children to study. And so, of course, the education suffered. So it's literally like, you know, the whole thing just comes tumbling down when you just take away one, uh, you know, key uh, resource that they might have they were just losing that those jobs that fetched her that monthly amount that you know helped take care of the family's needs and all of that then just had like the spiraling effect on every aspect of their life. So um, so and, and and so this is a snapshot of you know Delhi and then of course I gave you the macro picture of how it's affected women worldwide in the informal economy.
0: Yeah, heart wrenching actually. These stories have been flooding us uh, every single day virtually. Shalini, you've written that employment in the informal sector and informal employment are two different concepts could you explain that
1: yeah so this is interesting you know we 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 sort of look at the informal and the unorganized sector is this huge uh, sort of entity and 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 then as one has sort of reported and you know worked on different aspects there are just so many different uh, layers and nuances to it so uh, beginning with the you know the definition itself that when you look at employment in the informal sector it is defined by the characteristics of the place of work so, for example, uh, the 18-year-old girl who I mentioned, Zenith, who works with her mother, Kishwar, in this jeans packing unit uh, in Delhi. Um, so they work in this garment unit. So you know they get no paid leave and all of that. So that's a characteristic of the workplace. And then if we look at an un- in- in- informal employment, which is basically the employment relationship and social protection associated with the job. So in this case, I looked at uh, Rihanna and Samina, uh, both. Uh, again, also live in the same neighborhood as uh, Zenith and her mother. And they work from home. Uh, where wherehana has invested somehow with her savings over the years, bought two motorized sewing machines. And, you know, she makes uh, clothes on order from whoever gives her the order. And uh, Samina works on putting locks on zip strips, right? Like you have these little locks that you put on a, uh, like a zip thing. And then that entire zip unit is put on a garment. So she uh, works, you know, she could work anywhere between 8 to 10, 12 hours a day. And for each packet, each packet has about uh, between 2,000 to 5,000 Ziplocs. And it, it takes like 10, 15, 20 seconds at the most to put one lock onto that strip. But uh, it's look at the the sheer number of it, right? like 5,000 or, you know, whatever, however uh, many that there are. And she tries to, and no matter how much she... Uh, Works. I mean, there's limited hours in the day, given that you have domestic work and all of the other things to also take care of. And then, of course, you know, as much as the contractor will give her, you know, the, he'll give her like an X number of, you know, packets of Ziplocs to work on. And uh, so she, so they work from home. Dehana and Samina, they work from home. So they have no job security or regular income. The contractor could go to somebody else who says, OK, I'll work at a lesser rate. And, you know, they could lose their job. So uh, if, if you also look at domestic workers, uh, they, are, they also have informal jobs. So, um, yeah, so broadly, that's the difference between the two. That one is to do with the nature of uh, the place where you work and the other is the relationship of the job.
0: And that, I think, is also uh, connected to something else that you found, which is that women tend to prioritize short-term basic needs. So what does this mean for their long-term financial security, savings, etc.?
1: I mean, so basic needs, if you look at, would be the roti kapra makan, the food, clothing, shelter, right? And uh, if a woman is earning or the household together is earning, say, ten fifteen thousand 15,000 rupees a month, living in, say, a place like Delhi, where the rent for, you know, like a literally a 10-meter hovel is uh, anywhere between three to four to 5,000. And then you have food costs, and then you have uh, transport, for example. If you're going to your place of work, you may take a bus, or you take an auto and all of that. So my point is that uh, a limited income, which barely meets your basic needs, and then you're literally left with no savings. And without savings, uh, how do you plan for any sort of... A, uh, you know, future or you know any any other long term planning that you might be able to do. Um, so obviously you're left with no safety, no security when it comes to uh, you know uh, your financial future. And um, you know somebody uh, somebody who tries to be prudent like Rehana that I mentioned, she saved up from her you know little meager earnings to buy these two sewing machines. But but then those sewing machines are motorized, so they also eat up they like they they push up their electricity bills to about seven hundred a month. And, uh, and then, and then in times of crisis, like the lockdown, um, I'd interviewed a vegetable vendor, uh, again, uh, you know, a few kilometers from my house and to sort of understand, uh, you know, what were her difficulties. And uh, they were forced to borrow from those informal money lenders who come to their uh, neighborhood charging, you know, some X amount of interest and uh, they need the money and they just take it. And then, uh, you know, there are no formal ways that they can borrow money where they're sort of assured that, you know, Uh, there is a proper procedure or some, you know, proper mechanism in place and they're, um, it's just, yeah, they just get hit from so many sides. So my point is, if you're not getting basics, if you're not getting your basics met, or if you're barely able to manage to get your basics met, what are you going to plan for the future ahead? So you're literally going to live on a, you know, day to day basis.
0: That's right. uh, God forbid, if a health crisis happens, then... Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I
1: forgot to even mention that. There you go. If you have a health problem, what do you do and where do you go?
0: Absolutely. Your writing for Women at Work, at least the initial part, focuses on India's textiles and garment sector. What is the gender composition of the workforce here? And what iniquities do women face?
1: So my third story in this series uh, uh, called Women at Work uh, is about women in informal work. Uh, informal employment and I took uh, textiles and garments as India's oldest industry to understand the status of women today. So um, if you look at the textile and the garments industry, uh, it it contributes 2% of India's GDP and 12% of India's exports. And if you look at the Asia and Pacific region, which has 60% of the world's apparel exports, so and it employs 65 million or 75 percent of all garment workers uh, you know, in, 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 in the world, and of which 35 million are women. Now India employs four, 14.6 million workers in the garment uh, industry, of which 6.1 percent are women. So one of the, fir- the first inequi- inequity, of course, that they face is economic you know wages uh, if you if you look at certain reports um, that i you know have accessed and sort of quoted in my story is that uh, women, men generally working in in the garments or the textile industry are sort of more formal in the sense that they, re- they receive monthly wages whereas women uh, work at piece rate basis and of course then they are uh, there's insecure income and they have less bargaining power and all of that and if you're a marginalized uh, you know community then things are even worse off for you
0: yeah in fact i wanted that was going to be my next question is it more acute for women from marginalized or vulnerable groups minorities, oh, oh yes rabbits,
1: absolutely etc.? absolutely i mean according to this uh, wage report that i cite in my story nine out of ten muslim workers are in the informal sector and more muslim women than say hindu or any other religion are in the informal sector today And also if I was to look at uh, uh, more younger people between the age of 15 and 24 and older people who are 65 and above are in the informal sector. And of course, there are more older women in the informal sector than men. And uh, if I was just quote a a few more figures to you, uh, if I was to look at women in the informal sector from the scheduled tribe group, that would be 87.1% compared to uh, women in the formal economy, which would be 13%, and from the schedule caste, you have 90.4% women in the informal economy and 9.6% in the formal economy. And if you look at um, uh, if you look at uh, uh, Muslim women, it's 95.1% in the informal economy and 4.9% in the formal economy. And of course, others uh, would be different figures. So basically, what I'm saying is that total women in uh, the informal economy are 92.1%. And, uh, of course, economic class and education also has a correlation. So, the poorer you are, the more likely you are to be in the informal sector. And the less educated you are, the more likely you are to be in the informal economy.
0: Staggering numbers.
1: You bet. (laughs)
0: Uh, The government, Shalini, wants to converge 44 labor laws under four codes. Uh, That is the code on wages. The code on industrial relations, the code on social security, occupational safety, health and working conditions and lastly the industrial relations code. Now it justifies this as a simplification of compliance. What's wrong with that and also why is this more problematic for women specifically?
1: So I think it's important to understand that these codes are a consolidation of the existing labour laws. There is no real reform but a clubbing together of laws that exist and uh, it is being done for the ease of businesses, uh, which makes it easier for them to, you know, sort of tick mark certain things and file their returns and, you know, all of that. And uh, I mean, as I, in fact, just just before we uh, got onto the, you know, this, the show, I was talking to a lawyer to, you know, get, get even further clarity. And according to him, uh, India wants to, you know, the Indian government wants to improve India's image in terms of uh, being an investment destination and, you know, wanting more FDI to come in. So to improve the image of the country, uh, uh, this is largely being done for the organised sector. Uh, you know, bringing together these uh, all these several laws into four codes. That's that's largely the intention. And um, I mean, uh, I, I I think this is best explained by this very interesting WhatsApp forward that I you know got the other day, where you're looking at. Uh, you know, t- three people of three different heights um, looking over a wall uh, into, I think, what I presume is a cricket match. And, uh, you know, you you talk about equality, you so you give them all one block each to stand on to be able to look at the match, right? But when you talk of justice, you see that who needs it more because the man who's the tallest doesn't need the block to stand up and see the match. But the one who's the shortest, you know, would need it, or man, or whoever, uh, you know, person. Yeah. So, I, 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 at a very simple level, uh, you know, when we talk of uh, inequality, um, you have to look at justice, uh, you know, from a, from a nuanced uh, perspective, which is, uh, uh, when you say it's, it, it needs a framework of uh, social, economic, political, gender, and culture, um, you know, justice.
0: Yeah, yeah. But it's not a question of giving everybody the same things. It's a question of understanding uh, at what disadvantage position each one is and then, uh, you know, then giving people what they need accordingly. Vishalini, we do have an unorganized uh, workers' social security act that was announced in 2008. Why did it not work?
1: You know what the interesting, the most most interesting thing I have to tell you that, uh, I mean, as I was researching for this story, um, this was the first time that I heard of an act like this that existed and i was talking to some of my lawyer friends and uh they said yeah this is you know the first time that we are hearing of an act that exists for you know un- unorganized workers and it's been there since 2008 um and again uh, speaking to a couple of lawyers uh you know the, so their their thing is that you know the intent the legislative intent was there uh but the but the law was not uh, you know implemented in um, in in letter and spirit because uh, well okay let me put it like this um, for example if i am an informal worker so i have um, the right to get some kind of social security but uh, if if those if those if the government doesn't make any schemes to make that social security a reality or a way for me to get it then my rights literally remain on paper so essentially that's what it means that yeah i may have the right but it's on paper because still there are schemes to uh, you know distribute uh, or sort of make it clearer, how are you going to do it? That yes, you have the right intention, but how are you going to do it? So um, that's pretty much how one looks at it. And now the interesting thing is that this uh, unorganized, uh, you know, the Unorganized Workers Social Security Act of 2008 has been brought under the code of social security, um, which, well, we'll we'll have to see how it plays out. Uh, because it's, it's you know, again, these codes are more for geared towards the employers to make, uh, uh you know doing business easier for them um but how much of it is going to benefit employees and workers um that really uh, remains to be seen?
0: I did say it another example of the wide gap between legislation and execution, isn't it?
1: Yes, yes, absolutely
0: shall today the word union is a four letter word. right?
1: You mean like labor the need union. of the hour, it's a four letter word meaning need,
0: right? <laughs> I, mean, I would say so, but I mean, this is not really the way, uh, you know, society or I would say at least the business of the government lands, government looks at it. In fact, labor unions are frowned upon in this age of capitalism, but when it comes specifically to women, how do unions help women, especially informal workers?
1: So if you look at cases, uh, you know, look at the case of cities like Bangalore and Chennai, if you look at the textile and the garment workers there, and I was speaking to a union leader, a woman union leader there, and she said that unionization has helped women garment workers in these cities get a better deal uh, under the law, you know, I mean, get a better deal, you know, by by sort of collectivizing and, you know, being able to bargain. Uh, I mean, under the law, workers can unionize and demand for better conditions, but, you know post liberalization um, you know we've seen in india companies have tried to fragment workers so that they don't gather strength in numbers i mean we we can see what ha- what has happened in journalism as well right uh we've had uh, you know people on contract uh, increasingly you know more jobs are on contract which means that you know if you don't renew your contract next year um, you know you, you 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 just don't have a job right and um, and, and, and uh, I mean, now they're talking about that under the new codes that companies will have to give letters of employment. But, you know, who's going to enforce these letters? Uh, so you, you can say that if, if there are unions that can create a climate of compliance, then maybe it could lead to some form of formalization. But, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I hope that can happen. So I, I personally think that as things um, get you know, different and, uh, you know, in some ways more difficult. I, I think it's important for people to get together and, you know, especially women who are at have, have so many several, you know, disadvantages already existing uh, to get together and, uh, you know, be able to bargain for something better.
0: Why is the informal economy important?
1: Um, very simply put, uh, given that more than half of the global labor force is an informal in informal economy, is an informal in econ- informal economy and in India over ninety percent uh, uh, of I mean over ninety percent of workers um, get a basic livelihood from the informal in economy from the informal economy so what we are basically saying is that the informal economy is a way for people to uh, not fall into absolute poverty right um right. Uh, So, I mean, of course, we know the conditions of the informal economy that irregular incomes, you know, they're not registered. Uh, You know, companies get cheap labor, minimum compliances, exploitation in so many cases. And of course, the way forward is, you know, for decent work and formalization. But uh, and that's important for human development in any country. But uh, and we have to understand that informal economy in any country you know, is absolutely not uh, homogeneous in nature. It is, uh, you know, you know it's, it's nuanced by so many different things and so many different issues. Uh, and of course, the commonality is about, you know, several issues that are in common. But uh, I mean, at, at, at a very basic level, the informal economy does, you know, helps people to not be absolutely poor. And yeah, basically yeah.
0: that. Yeah. Did the did demonetization and the very poor implementation, I would say, of the goods and services tax impact the informal economy?
1: Absolutely, hugely. Uh, uh, Keep in mind that India is still a very cash, uh, you know, we're a cash society as opposed to, you know, credit and uh, a lot of things, most things work on cash, uh, even till date in fact in 2016 when demonetization happened um, and i was with the week magazine at that time and i reported how uh, in fact i in fact i did a specific story looking at how demonetization affected uh, uh, women uh, women workers across the socioeconomic spectrum of course mostly in the um, uh, informal sector and i'll give you an example of uh, uh, you know um, this young woman uh, she's barely 30 at that time and a single mother uh, and she uh, is is uh, used to be a freelance beautician who used to, you know, uh, come and, you know, help my mother, you know, do a few things for her, like a pedicure and things like that. She would come home and do it. Carry a, you know, huge heavy bag. Uh, you know, she lived close by. Her name is Shainaz. Uh, haven't heard from her in a long time. But yeah, so she would come with this huge heavy bag and, you know, on a little scooter and, you know, which she learned how to ride herself and all of that. And uh, so when demonetization happened, I spoke to her and asked her and I said, how are things playing out for her? And she said that she tried not accepting money in you know in five hundred and thousand for her services you know for the people that she was working for but and then the clients would offer her like a note two thousand rupee note but she had no change and so then it would lead into credit now when you're you know going into credit now your basic needs which you need you know every day uh, i'm sorry i just get very i just get very angry (laughs) talking about this you know it, it just further delayed her basic needs for her and her children right and, uh, or for example, you had domestic help that would stand in lines, long queues for day, for hours and hours, you know, despite their work responsibilities, um, you know, to exchange their notes. So, and it's not like, uh, yeah, some people were sensitive enough to sort of let them do it. But then uh, we know how things play out with the Indian middle class. And then you had uh, women in factories who are paid in cash. They also had to stand in queues. They had to cut, uh, you know, work day, um, lose wages for the day or stand in queues to get their money exchange. Uh Homemakers, uh, you know, who would save money in cash. Um, in fact, um, uh, well-known development uh, economist Jayati Ghosh was telling me about, uh, you know, drunken husbands beating up uh, their wives after they got to know that they had saved up uh you know, money in cash, and uh, now this was the savings was useless were useless because uh, they were in denominations uh, denomination of five hundred and thousand so uh, uh yeah, yeah
0: yeah char tell us a, I know you already told us several stories of the women that you met. tell us a couple of other stories of the women that you met while doing these this series.
1: I mean, so for example, um, um, I mean, I met someone who had a, and and these are all people I've, you know, interviewed for the, you know, the four, three, four stories that I've done in the last uh, four months, uh, you know, under the women at work series. So I met someone who had a turnover of one crore to someone who was selling vegetables in a cart for like four, five thousand rupees a month. Uh, Somebody running an organic food business, like a shop outside, you know, 200 meters away from her five BHK apartment to somebody running a Kirana store underneath her home in a low-income neighborhood, uh, you know, six kilometers away from this lady, and living in a 10 square meter hovel with three children and a husband in the same space. And at every step, I found that these women faced biases and obstacles in their space of work. And I know that it all boils down to patriarchy in different forms. And it is interesting to note that how, you know, whether you're, you know, you're a businesswoman in a upper middle class family or somebody who's just barely selling vegetables to make ends meet. You know, you're, 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 you're plagued by, you know, patriarchy, um, you know, whether it's institutional or societal. In fact, I think at some level, you know, personal battles are still easier to uh, maybe handle as opposed to, you know, some of the bigger ones that are there. Um, but uh, the interest and, and what I found really interesting and heartening was, you know, the determination and the grit in all these women. Uh, so whether they were doing what they were doing out of choice or compulsion, you know, there, there was a sense of determination and grit, which, uh, I mean, just sort of sensitized me uh, even more, you know, when I would come back and, you know, see some of the choices that, you know, for example, maybe my mother's made at home and, you know, to ensure that uh, my life runs smoothly, uh, you know, so many things that, you know, one takes for granted and you just end up appreciating uh, every little thing that somebody around you does. And I think, I think that's what... Uh, this this assignment also further opened up layers for me.
0: Absolutely, Shalini, why do you do the work that you do?
1: <laughs> okay, uh, so well, uh, b- b- bear with me for a slightly long uh, answer. Absolutely,
0: absolutely.
1: Uh, Take so I, I've always loved expressing myself through writing since I was a kid because uh, I was a shy kid. And I would rant about my noisy neighbors. And the best way to do it was through, write, by writing essays. <laughs> Which only my family read and was, you know, uh, amused by. And, and so then later, when I stumbled into journalism and I stayed on. Uh, for me, and then, uh, I mean, b- b- before that, right? Between childhood and, uh, you know, uh, starting my career in journalism, there was this, you know, period when you grew up in the 90s. And uh, I was 10 years old when, uh, in 91, when... Liberalisation happened, and uh, you know there's this whole slogan of India shining, India shining, and like literally 300, 500 meters from my house, I would see, uh, you know, people were still begging, you know, pe- there was there was there was still so much, you know, um, poverty, or there was still so much, you know, uh, a lack of uh, basic resources to so many people, and as as a preteen or even as a teen, I was like, oh, who is it shining for? What is this India shining? What does it mean? And that just kind of stayed with me and uh, and I guess when I got into journalism and sort of stayed on it was very obvious to me that if if I'm in a minority in this country you know then it's I I have to uh, tell the stories of those who are in the majority but are uh, least represented and least seen and not heard and so it was very obvious what my position was Uh, uh, not always uh, it's not something that amused my editors very much because then you were tagged the Jholawala journalist because you want to care about people's rights and their issues. And, um, you know, I've, so I've, I've sort of, you know, uh, I've also written about what kind of whiskey goes with what kind of food and getting my dog <laughs> married in a mass ceremony, which, uh, you know, <laughs> <it> was great. <laughs> I was appreciated for it, but that's not the kind of work I wanted to do. But that's, you know, what the mainstream, um, you know, always wanted you to sort of, you know, but anyway. And I think, um, and then of course, having a teacher like Sainath, who's also now my editor at uh, People's Archive of Rural India. And, you know, two things, very important things that I've seen closely observing him uh, in the last uh, 18 years that I've known him is two things. One is that you take action on uh, what you believe in and uh, you stay hopeful. So, and, and, and cynicism, as you would know, is, you know, is is... Is like that plaque, emotional plaque that can build up, and uh, you know that's something that needs to be cleaned up, uh, you know, regularly. So, uh, but let me let me share something um, exciting with you. Since you were in sure. Afghanistan, so you might find <laughs> this interesting. Uh, so, 2017-18, when I was a Neiman Fellow, uh, and I and I remember when we were at Hindustan Times, you had uh, you had gone to Afghanistan to train journalists, right? and uh, that's right so 2011 2011 right so um i remember in 2008 so 17 18 i was an neiman fellow and uh, so during the j term which they have which is uh, you know the the break between the the fall and the spring semester you have that one month of january which is like the j term and i took up a so we were allowed to audit classes across uh, different uh, departments and campuses there so I opted for uh, the negotiation class at the Harvard Kennedy School which was taught by a professor named uh, Brian Mandel who I was told was a former comedian (laughs) <laughs> which was very interesting that you have a former comedian turned, uh, you know, negotiator, and uh, so and he had like the you know the most deadpan way of delivering what he would say, which was extremely funny. But anyway, that's not the point. Um, so, uh, so it was interesting. So, so, so the best part about the negotiation class, which ran for about a week, less than few days, ran for a few days, where we had like, uh, I don't know, fifty or hundred, uh, you know, students from across the world, across departments. Uh, over this 3 or 4 day negotiation sort of a, somebody called it like a UN mock assembly or whatever and everybody was assigned roles you know, Uh, you were given a docket like you were given a document which would be your role and then you sort of of figure out your negotiation role that you had to play and you know, basically get your demands met and all of that anyway, come to the main point so uh, I was very intrigued by the fact that they chose me to play let me get you the exact designation that was given to me which was uh, yeah, so I was a member of the Revolutionary Association of the Women of Afghanistan. So, which was uh, which was fabulous, and uh, and I had and I was given this charter of demands that I had to negotiate and get met, and uh, it was a lot of fun because uh, I, I I think I managed to strategize and you know uh, using all honest means, of course, you know nothing uh, you know sort of. Uh, under the radar and, you know, all of that. And I managed to get uh, most of my demands met. And so um, that was exciting. So then uh, when India's got in touch with me last year, you know, to come on board for the series. So so that almost felt like prophetic, right? That three years ago you were playing this, uh, you know, role of a, um, a woman activist, you know, trying to, uh, you know, for, for example, get 50% of reservation for women in the parliament. And then, you know, you're now doing this uh, as, a, as a journalist, doing stories on... Uh, You know, women in uh, informal sector and of course, you know, various other issues related to women. So, um, yeah, I just thought I would share that with you. That was fun.
0: That's fascinating. Incidentally, Afghanistan, I think, already has a Mm. significant reservation for women in Mm. parliament. Something that India has still not managed to do.
1: Ah, interesting. Nice.
0: (laughs) Shalini, like in all aspects of life, the odds are stacked against women, even when it comes to making a living. So, thanks for explaining what our women workers are up against every single day.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Um, I, I just hope that you know uh, we just going forward we can we can um, start by being more sensitive, uh, uh, more sort of you know develop more empathy in terms of the role uh, that you know women play in our lives, uh, and just uh, you know begin by acknowledging anything and you know everything that they do for us, and uh, you know at least that's that's a start, and then. Whatever in our own capacity we can do going forward, that would, that would be good.
0: Absolutely. Thank you all for listening. Please visit All Indians Matter dot in. That's A-L-L-I-N-D-I-A-N-S-M-A-T-T-E-R.in for more columns and audio podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Ashraf Engineer. That's A S H R A F E N G I N W E R, and All Indians Count. That's A W L. I n d i a n s c o u n t. Search for the All Indians Matter page on Facebook. On Instagram, the handle is All Indians Matter. Email me at editor at allindiansmatter.in. Catch you again soon.